So you hear the news about Live Golf and their attempt to get uh, official world golf ranking points? Yes, I did hear the news. You want to share it with our listeners? Yeah. So in an attempt to find a way to get their players um, OWGR points. Um, official world golf rankings for those right. of you who don't know what OWGR I, is. I thought I just said that, but. Uh, before but well you did but you didn't you, then you said owgr so yeah I, correct okay i didn't i did not you're right I, well I, before I you define before, the, got to define yeah. the acronym both before and after that's the key that's be, the be, protocol before you go on can i can i just mention can you try pickleball some more no 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 but i um for those of you who are familiar with the work work of nick hornby he is Truly a, a treasure, right? I would he's an American treasure. I love so I, I am back revisiting one of my favorite books, Fever Pitch, about his lifelong love affair with, with Arsenal. And there was a line at the beginning of the book. You know when an author speaks to you, when a piece of work speaks to you? This yes. one spoke to me. So if you'll indulge me, here's a, a, a brief quote from the book. The truth is this, for alarmingly large chunks of an average day, I am a moron. That spoke to me in a way that no literature ever has. So I apologize for telling people what OWGR is, not 30 okay. seconds after you say official world golf. Do you, do you? All right, welcome to episode number 39 of, wait, what? Sports Biz Chat with DP and McGee, the podcast where we take a sometimes irreverent, sometimes cynical, and even a sometimes serious look at the business of sports. I'm your co-host, Tim McGee. And I'm David Perrow. David, I know you're anxious to talk about what's on your mind, so what do you got? You know, there's a, a pretty major subject uh, that the industry is talking about a lot. It was something that we um, did not talk about last week when the news first broke, but since then, a number of other dominoes have continued to fall and more news continues to break. And that is on the report that came out, a very damning report came out uh, last week from uh, the former um, acting attorney general, deputy attorney general, um, prior to that, Sally Yates, uh, on a massive amount of I guess I'll say shitty behavior on the part of uh, uh, coaches and, you know, and, and owners, uh, at least for their silence um, in the NWSL. There's there's so many things happening and it's, it's all happening now. And I, I know that uh, you spent today at uh, World Congress of Sports and the commissioner, Jessica Berman, was there. So I can't wait to hear uh, some of the things coming out. But uh, what's what's fascinating is. In this case, there are now multiple owners who have basically already stepped away. Uh, they're stepping aside, for the most part, saying that, well, this was on their watch and they pride themselves on running the kind of organization where this stuff doesn't happen. But they were in charge. And quite honestly, it seems like from this report that just a number of things were, you know, a lot of looking the other way. Uh, and kind of defense of the coach and not wanting these stories to uh, to come out. And what the what the Yates report really showed just was was I, I I can't say anything other than what seems like systemic you know abuse certainly with multiple teams and then a bunch of just really you know kind of toxic type of uh, uh, coaching techniques and so forth. So just a real mess. Uh, I, but but I'll say this. I looked at the NWSL website today, and you don't see this very often. The entire site was kind of covered with stories about this and the uh, announcements made. So it, it does appear that progress is being made toward making sure that we shine a light on all of this. Uh, there's no way that you couldn't be given the news that's breaking. But I, I tell you what, it, it, it kind of harkens back to the... Um, news from the Chicago Blackhawks some time ago it was a Kyle Beach situation where there was a, a, a sexual abuse uh, scenario that happened. And and then basically a report that came out that talked about the cover-up on this. And I just don't know how in today's day and age that not only that these things are happening, on the five-year anniversary, by the way, of the Me Too movement, five years as of yesterday when the when kind of the, you know, everything broke on the Harvey Weinstein thing. 
that that's still happening, but that the clubs and leagues, you know, will continue to try to mitigate the damage by not talking about it when obviously that's the situation that just causes a lot, you know, kind of worse situations to pop up. I'll, I'll stop yapping for a bit and, and no, like I, to hear I, your I perspective. It, I think it bears the type of coverage we're giving it. So as you said, I'm, uh, I'm attending the world Congress of sports today, and I was fortunate enough to hear an interview one-on-one with NWSL commissioner, Jessica Berman. Um, she said uh, several things that stood out to me. Um, the first one was that she had uh, absolutely no advanced knowledge or excuse me, no advanced information as to when the report was going to be released. So she read it when everybody else read it. Number one, number two, the league in conjunction with the players are conducting their own investigation. She hopes or had hoped that that would be completed before the end of the year. Um, but given how much new information came out in the Yates report. She's not sure if they're going to be able to complete it in that time. But she said that the the report, the investigation is intended to do three things. One is uncover the truth. Uh, Second is to remedy the situation, whatever that means. And the third thing is they would like to put in processes and policies and procedures that will prevent it from happening again. You know, you you called it abuse. If you hadn't used that word, if you had trouble coming up with that word, that was the word I would have used. Uh, I, I, I read some of these reports about some of these coaches' behavior, and I can't, even in my wildest imaginings, think how anyone, anyone could ever think that what they were doing is in any way acceptable. Um, it was that egregious, and if you... You know, if you don't know what I'm talking about, just go out and Google it. I, I don't I don't even want to talk about it. Um, but the sexual abuse and mistreatment of these young women, uh, not only as 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 athletes and as players on their team, uh, but but the emotional scars that these are going to cause for these young women, uh, which could last a lifetime in some cases. It's just absolutely horrific that people would treat other people like that. But we the the, the consequences have been swift. They don't seem to be slowing down at this point. Uh, Alaska Airlines and Directors Mortgage and Union Wine Company have terminated their relationships with uh, the Portland organization. And uh, just in, just read today, shortly before we came on the air, that uh, the head coach and the assistant coach of the Orlando Pride and the head coach is a woman, um, had their contracts terminated because they uh, – uh, engaged in what the club referred to as retaliatory behavior towards their players. So that's, for some reason, that struck me as particularly deplorable behavior, right? A, a female coach uh, engaging in that. And then the last thing I'll say about, um, you know, Commissioner Berman and what she said today was she was she was talking about the fact that, you know, this type of behavior by coaches will not be acceptable anymore to players, right? Just period. It, it just won't, you know, whether it's bullying, hazing, certainly sexual uh, misconduct and sexual abuse. Um, but even the things that the, that the Orlando coach was accused of would no longer be tolerated in the league. And this, and another sad thing is, is the league has had so much success on the field of play, on the commercial side. And to have this black eye now at an inflection point in the league when it was really poised for really significant growth is just it's it's horrible you're absolutely right it it is horrible and the question is does this shine a light more on what it is that the league can be what they want to be moving forward um, in terms of a collaboration between players and you know and and i guess the league itself uh and then bringing in new um chairs of these organizations uh, that are not just sympathetic to um, the cause, but actually pushing um, the charge. So, um, yep. I, I um, you know, they read the league recently announced the formation of a players association. So, from Commissioner Berman's comments today, it would appear that this is a completely collaborative effort between the league and its players. Um, that's not often the case, or I should say, it's sometimes not the case. The relationship between a players association and the league there is sometimes contentious 
a relationship or an adversarial relationship but this in this particular instance it seems that they are both sides are um, determined to get to the truth and punish people um, who have engaged in wrongdoing and ensure that it never happens again yeah. um, it's interesting i was talking to a friend last night who is a very senior leader at uh, nwsl club and she said i'm out i quit i gave my letter of resignation i just can't uh, I can't be a party to this, which is unfortunate too, because this is a person who made their livelihood in the sport of soccer and felt compelled to give it up, at least in the immediate term, uh, because of the situation they found themselves in as an as an executive at an NWSL club. And I had just reached out to her to see how she was doing, and so that sort of hit me as a ton of bricks too. So the the personal impact is is big as well, right? It's not just an institutional thing or an organizational thing, it goes down to the personal level. Right. Yeah. But listen, it, it, and all of that stuff is all tied together as I see it. You know, you mentioned the, the sponsors that are throwing their weight around something else we've talked about on the show. What, what are the role and what's the power? What is the power that the sponsors have when it comes to creating change within these organizations? And this is another moment in that, but that's why I suppose I feel fairly optimistic and we'll see what the what Jessica Berman's leadership is over the next few months um, at this very uh, important time, both in, in terms of where they are in their schedule. Right. You know, they're heading toward the, you know, toward the playoffs and the in the finals here and in, in, in what was, I think, considered the best season uh, ever and one that was, you know, was showing so much promise. Um, but with sponsors and a new attitude and a new relationship with players you know, demanding what it is that they want from their organization. I know a lot of people just don't like that, right? There's a lot of pushback when players um, kind of take charge, you know? I think you've mentioned this shut up and dribble line before. Yeah. Um, I don't mean to be like stupid naive because every time sometimes, you know, you think some change is happening, you, you hear these reports and are just kind of shocked back into reality. But at the same time, I think with good leadership uh, and with the players being unified, um, and quite honestly, I think with this becoming a, a global issue, the ability for the, the players not just to necessarily dictate whatever terms they want, but to be in control of the environment that they want, you know, to back to my original point, uh, there's an optimism in me that uh, something really good can can come from all this. I don't think it's naivete. I think it, it's it's optimism born of, you know, knowing that sport can be a, a, a change agent for good. Um, and unfortunately, it had to be really bad in this situation. Um, you see, you know, you see something going on with Hockey Canada as well, uh, or, or which we could spend a whole other conversation about. But hopefully, hopefully, the, the worst has passed for the NWSL. It is going to test Commissioner Berman's uh, leadership like nothing she probably anticipated. Although she did come in knowing, you know, probably 80% of what's come out in that Yates report, um, it's still knowing about it and having to respond to it and live through it is two different things. Yeah, I mean, she came on board because of the tip of the iceberg of this scandal. You know, the change was made uh, at the leadership. And now this report comes out, which just seems remarkably exhaustive. But Which is what you would expect from a former... Yeah, Deputy Attorney General. So lots to talk about on this, I'm sure, in the in the coming weeks. Um, yeah. What would you like to talk about? We have talked about pickleball in the past, and somebody came up to me recently and said, uh, "Why are you trashing pickleball?" And you know what I said to them, David? Because it's pickleball. That's what I said to them. Um, and it was a subject of conversation in the in the first panel this morning. At the World Congress of Sports. Well, let's see. Thomas Dundon, the owner of the Carolina Hurricanes, Drew Brees, LeBron, um, KD, Vaynerchuk. Uh, is KD invested? I haven't even mentioned I believe him. So. So I think through one of his phones. Well, he's it seems it seems everybody is except you. So you hear the news about Live Golf and their attempt to get. Uh, official World Golf ranking points. Womp womp. Yes, I did hear the news. Do you want to share it with our listeners? Yeah. So in an attempt to find a way to get their players um, OWGR points, 
Um, Official World Golf Rankings for those right. of you who don't know what OWGR is. I thought I just said that, but uh, before, but well, you I, did, but you didn't. You, then you said OWGR. So yeah, uh, correct. Okay, I didn't. I did not. You're right. I, well, I, before I you define, got to define the acronym both before and after. That's the key. That's be, the be, protocol. Before you go on, can I? Can I just mention? Can you trash something? pickleball some more? No, 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 no. But I, um, for those of you who are familiar with the work work of Nick Hornby, he is truly oh. a, a treasure, right? I would he's an American treasure. I love. So I, I am back revisiting one of my favorite books, Fever Pitch, about his lifelong love affair with with Arsenal. And there was a line at the beginning of the book. You know when an author speaks to you, when a piece of work speaks to you? This yes. one spoke to me. So if you'll indulge me, here's a, a, a brief quote from the book. The truth is this. For alarmingly large chunks of an average day, I am a moron. That spoke to me in a way that no literature ever has. So... I apologize for telling people what OWGR is not 30 <laughs> seconds after you say official world golf. Right? You, did you actually pull that book? Because I saw you actually pull a book. I had the book in my bag this morning as I yeah. was getting ready. I, I needed a book for the train, and I pulled that off the shelf. And I said, this would be a nice book to revisit. Yeah, very nice. Very nice. Okay. Back to OWGR and live. And what is OWGR? And that's official world <laughs> golf. <laughs> Um, so they tried to kind of back end into getting these points through a little known tour called the MENA tour, which is Middle East and North Africa, uh, a tour that hasn't even played an event in a while. And they play very few. And they basically said, sure, we will make this tour event. We'll make the Bangkok live tour a MENA tour event and we get ranked. So therefore you'll get rank points. And then the base. And it's first, it seemed like the most brilliant, you know, back end way to get something scheme we've ever heard of in sports. But then I think somebody probably got to mean folks and they're like, oh, well, hold on a second. Unless you make these changes, you know, like not 54 holes and, you know, and, and not no cuts and all those things that live golf has. So they got kind of the uh, they got kind of the Heisman. Uh, on that, but I, I can't. I have to give him an A for effort on the on the creativity there. Yeah, yeah, not the type of Bangkok tour you typically think about. Uh, <laughs> At least the listeners of our podcast, or, or my friends who are listeners of this podcast, okay. I should say. Yeah. So um, we we have talked about Broadway musicals in the past. We have. There was a, a musical, a, a, one of the lesser known. What's his name? Uh, Andrew Lloyd Webber shows. Uh, what's his name? Uh, I'm sorry. Yeah, old, good old, good old, good old Andrew, what's his name? Sir Andrew Lloyd Webber. Yeah, Sir Andrew Lloyd Webber. One of his lesser known shows, which had a fairly successful run in the 80s called Chess with the, the famous song. Follow me here. There's actually a thread. Okay. A famous yeah. song by Murray Head called One Night in Bangkok. Yeah. Right? So we go from the Bangkok tour. Yes. The Chess, yes, a little-known show. Murray Head, One Night in Bangkok. There is, um, there is trouble in the world of international chess and chess masters. I don't know if you've been. I don't know if you've been following tr tr trouble and and bizarreness. Maybe what's that? Yeah, yeah. So for those of you who don't know, we we do this kind of research for you, our loyal listeners. So Hans Neiman is a young man who is a grandmaster who has had tremendous success. In fact, he's had so much success that people started to question the, his rapid rise in the world chess rankings. He recently not, defeated Mag... Not to be confused with official world golf rankings. I thought, you were, uh, I thought you were going to say not to be confused with Hans from Die Hard, mm -hmm. whose last name escapes me. I remember Nakatomi Tower, but not um, Hans. And, and if you're listening to this podcast, please send us a note and, and help me. Uh, but Hans Neiman defeated Magnus Carlsen, um, sort of the LeBron James of the chess world. And um, Magnus Carlsen was sort of out of sorts because he, it was very hard for him. These 
as, as you can imagine, chess masters are incredibly cerebral people. And, you know, you, you've heard the expression thinking three moves ahead, right? They think three moves ahead. So in his mind, when he lost, he, he had a very difficult time sort of uh, reconciling in his mind how he lost to this guy. Yeah. But anyway, it has come out that now he, Hans Niemann has been uh, suspended by the World Chess Federation or whatever the governing body is because it, it is strongly believed that he has cheated. Now, Tim, I have an important question. Tell us where it gets bizarre. Tell us where it gets bizarre. No, I'm going to have you tell us where it gets bizarre because this was your story. (laughs) Apparently. (laughs) And I'm a a chicken shit. No, so what is the the theory behind Neiman's cheating? Apparently he had some sort of uh, electrical device, right? And as you can imagine, chess is a game in which you play with your your brains and that's it right um and so there was a, they believed he was getting help from an electrical device and people were trying to figure out how he could sneak an electrical device into the match um let's just say let's just say that they didn't find anything in his mouth right was that tactful enough for our audience right so there now that has not been proven um, there is no smoking gun, so to speak. Well, what I'd like to know is, regardless of where the device was placed, what was he getting that gave him an advantage? What was the advantage gained by having an electric? I mean, I get it like the old that scandal in fencing where mm-hmm. the trigger on the um, on the sword would he could press a button and you could get a point that makes sense um, to me I, I, I think that i think what he was being given through somebody who had access to the board right the a view of the board was what move to make or what move to consider you know as we're now into the major league baseball playoffs do you think the houston astros are listening do you think that this is a new hard to detect approach in the baseball world to send like let's just say i wouldn't want to be the team trainer right now. <laughs> uh unless i'm guaranteed a full postseason share and and then some but you know chess right you thought it was a pure sport no apparently not. well as long as there's money and power there's going to be some motivation to uh yeah. you know to to or at least for some people not everybody obviously to you know look at ways to cheat and, you know, and, and how how could I forget? Uh, it came to me, Hans Gruber, right? So there you go. And way to way to close that segment. We have a, a great guest coming up, and there's one thing I want to talk about because we're probably going to touch on it real quick. Because last week we spent a lot of time on the Tua Tungo Vailoa head injury and the concussion protocol of the NFL. And while we were both very supportive of the measures taken by the NFL to try to curb. Um, the certain type of hits that cause that injury, particularly head injury. Uh, and for the most part, you know, we understand the protection of the quarterback. We've had two unbelievable calls in my mind over the last two days, including one in last night's Monday night football game uh, where Chris Jones of the Kansas City Chiefs sacked Derek Carr of the Raiders and actually st- stripped the ball from him and landed on him, but not full weight and not in a, in a, uh, hurtful way. Uh, if a 300 and some pound person falling on you couldn't be hurtful, uh, Chiefs ended up winning the game, but still it was a, a massive, really important moment uh, in the game. And then the day before, Tom Brady, big surprise, he got a <laughs> roughing the passer call that was absolutely ridiculous. So anyway, to me, they're just going to have to figure out a way to review these calls. If they're reviewing targeting, I don't know why they, they, they these are potentially significant calls in games and and these last two days they were both in the brady situation in the bucks game and in the last night's chief raiders game they were very significant moments yeah and 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 i don't disagree with you right there's uh you know typically each year and certain points of the year in any league not just the nfl right they will review with the officiating points of emphasis right and I think this is a point of emphasis that they should address with the officials so it doesn't happen. Yeah, but but having said that, the play devil's advocate, not to disagree with you though, um, you know, in the Dolphins game against the three and two New York Jets, mm. um, 
they uh, it, their second string quarterback Teddy Bridgewater was hurt in the first series and went out because of the concussion protocol. So you have to balance that protecting the quarterback um, with a very violent and an aggressive game. So uh, not easy to do, but you're right. It it can't it can't impact getting the call wrong can't impact the the outcome of the game. Yeah, not not easy to do at all, and uh, I I will completely agree with you on that. But we will end that here. Let's take a break. We will be back with a great guest coming right up. Hang with us. It's time for our guest. So, Tim, we have another dynamic sports executive joining us uh, as a guest this week. Fresh off a thrilling comeback win in last night's Monday Night Football game, we are joined by the president of the Kansas City Chiefs, Mark Donovan. I'm not going to run through his entire career progression, which is impressive to say the least, but he's held sales and marketing leadership positions at the NHL and the NFL before jumping to the team side, first with the Philadelphia Eagles from 2003 to 2009, then over to the Chiefs, where he was promoted to the president position in 2011. I've known Mark since the mid-1990s when he was dabbling in the NASCAR world, and, and since that time, I've considered him a friend. Mark was a star quarterback, I want to point out, at Brown and was drafted by the now 4-1 New York Giants. I won't ask this as a surprise trivia question, Tim, uh, since I know you'd get it right. But I want to add that Mark is now the second Brown grad we've had on the show. The first, of course, being Mark's teammate at Brown, George Pine. So with that, Mark, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's great to be here. It's good to see both of you. It's been way too long. Yeah, thanks, Mark. So let's go ahead and jump in to this discussion. I, I do want to talk about last night. The environment at the game just seemed absolutely intense. And I know you have a rabid fan base there in Kansas City, but last night just seemed pretty intense. And obviously it got amped up after that roughing the passer call on Chris Jones uh, after the Derek Carr strip sack. So can you kind of give us a little sense of just what the what the vibe was there at the game last night? And, and I guess in a larger way, you know, talk about your fan base. Well, first of all, you're starting with an incredible environment, right? So you've got GHA Field at Arrowhead, and it's Monday night, and it's Chiefs Raiders. So you start there. Um, and then pretty intense game, back and forth. Then you get that big call. Um, we were joking this morning that uh, we're not sure. You know, we have we have the record for the loudest stadium in 142.2 decibels. We've actually started to do some research. Should, should we pursue booing? Because it seemed louder last night from the booing. <laughs> and even cheering. We're not sure decibel levels, what a boo does versus a cheer, but it seemed even louder. Um, it was in just a crazy night, um, crazy plays on the field, crazy calls, a lot of emotion. Um, you know, you saw our leader, Patrick, uh, going after guys and guys going after him. Um, and I think our team fed on that. Um, I would just tell you the environment, we're, we're very, very biased here. And every team I know uh, comes on and talks about how they have the best fans and the best environment. But there's just something special about our stadium and our fans. And they make it. They make it special. Um, it was highlighted last night. We, we love opportunities like Monday Night Football and Sunday Night Football. Ironically, we've been this year in every window. We've been Thursday night, we've been Sunday at noon, we've been Sunday afternoon, we've been Sunday night, and we've been Monday night. So um, it's a tribute to our fans, and it was just a fun, fun night. Obviously, coming out on the winning side was huge. That makes it even more fun for us. But it's just another one of those special nights at Arrowhead. Yeah, great, great win. Congratulations. Um, so Kansas City, not one of the largest markets in the NFL, but it's a testament to the NFL's business model that teams like yours can compete year in and year out. Um, but how do you how do you go about generating revenue um, in, in a market that's not nearly as big as some of your even some of your you know your your teams in your own division? Yeah, you touched on it in the intro there. The question: one of the best things about our model is that every team in every market has an opportunity. Um, just the way we share revenues, the way we share the national revenues, um, it gives us a chance. And then it's up to you. Um, you know, we. I have the somewhat unique experience of being at the league and seeing how the league looks at it and then being in a big market in Philadelphia and just looking at how we looked at the business side of the team and the opportunities and what our expectations were. 
I had a little bit of a wake up moment when I moved to Kansas City and that I came there with the same expectations. And and you realize quickly that, you know, if you don't have the population base, if you don't have the Fortune 500 companies, if you don't have the base, you, you got to realign your expectations. Um, so one of the challenges as a leader of the organization is it's OK to realign the expectations, but you still have to have really, really high expectations, aspirations, you know, inspiring goals or else you're never going to get to your full um, capabilities. So that's what we've done. You know, I got there in 09 and um, there were four years of what we call character building. It was hard. You win in four games, you win in six games, you win in two games. That's hard. And then you add on a smaller market and you add on a stadium that's going through a renovation. We learned a lot about each other. We learned a lot about the market. We learned a lot about how we could do things, but we still had really, really high expectations. And we developed this mantra of prepare for success which was really about being ready. You know, we're not unique in this way, but our success is directly impacted by something we have no control over, a play on the field. So we had to get ready. So that when we did have good play on the field, we were gonna maximize that opportunity. That's probably what I'm most proud of. Um, we, we benefit from Andy Reid, we benefit from Patrick Mahomes and Travis Kelsey and Chris Jones and all the great players. And we benefit from Super Bowl championships and. Um, four straight AFC championships and all those things help us build our business. But if we're not ready, then we can't fully maximize that. And, you know, we, we've got a really good team here uh, on and off the field. And I'm really proud of our team off the field that, you know, we're, we're in the top quartile now in terms of a lot of the measurables that the league looks at. And we're in the bottom quartile when it comes to our market size. So that's one of the benefits of being in the NFL. It's also one of the benefits of being part of a great organization. Yeah. I think that's an interesting jumping off point to talk about your what I think is a pretty unique naming right situation uh, in in Kansas City in 2021. Government Employees Health Association, or GEHA, as you mentioned a little earlier, uh, which is a not-for-profit medical plan association, they became a naming rights partner to what is now known as GEHA Field at Arrowhead Stadium. Did you ever attempt to sell the 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 naming rights more completely. So to answer your first question, yes, we did look at other opportunities, uh, both other companies to be the field naming rights versus the stadium naming rights. And we did look at stadium naming rights. Um, I would tell you that the likelihood of us ever doing a full naming rights stadium deal was probably pretty small. Um, you know, everything's negotiable. So if somebody wowed us with a number, then I think we were probably gonna entertain the conversation. But um, for our fans, if anybody knows anything about the history of this organization, I mean, the family, the Hunt family, the stadium, the fact that Lamar basically designed it and created it, it's something really important to them, really special to them. Um, we, you know, we benefited from what Denver did uh, with Mile High and creating a platform where it could be acceptable. And then we spent a lot of time um, trying to identify the right company. And, you know, every naming rights deal has a story and everyone's different. Um, in our case, we were really, really looking for a Kansas City-based company that could represent us and we could represent them. Um, in GHA Field, in GHA, the company, I, you know, it's a little bit storybookish, so it sounds trite, um, but we found this company that nobody knew about, including us. Um, one of the biggest employers in our city that nobody knows about. And you guys have both been part of big organizations. You know that, you know, if you're the head of the organization and you're looking at your sales team and saying, who are possible potential, you know, naming rights partners, we haven't even had this company on our list. And they're in our backyard and they employ this many people and we don't even know about them. It was a, it's a bit of a wake up call for us. And then it get, gets better in that their story is, is so powerful. Um, GHA was actually started. Um, by the federal postal workers at Union Station in Kansas City, which is where a ton of the mail coming back and forth across the United States would come in the early 50s and 60s. One of the workers got cancer and the government employees came together and pulled their money. And so let's all collect money, help this person deal with the treatments and everything else. And you can imagine back in those days, it was a different kind of cost and different kind of treatment. Um, but that created this idea of, well, you know, that that family is struggling with a new baby and that family is struggling with insurance issues. And that, and they created this sort of co-op uh, pooling money to insure the workers that created a company that has been in Kansas City since 19 before us 
460. Um, and it is one of the largest government um, employee health associations in the world. Um, so for us, the opportunity to create a name rights partnership that raises their brand, gives them a platform to tell their story, um, and is truly authentic to Kansas City and to our region. And if you know anything about our town and the region of Kansas City, authenticity is probably the most important factor here. If you're not authentic, you're not going to last here. Yeah. Um, so for us to actually do a naming rights deal that was authentic uh, was a perfect combination. Yeah, I was curious as to how it, you know, given that they're a not-for-profit, uh, and they do have this global, I thought it was really only uh, national, but it sounds like they have a, a global presence. Um, you know, what does that mean in in a market with all the other things that you talk about, you know, the, the fan base there and the passion that they feel for the for the Kansas City Chiefs? You know, it, it seems like that just works a little better and there's more of a connection to it than the, the typical naming rights deal. I think one of the things that they were really attracted to was the timing. And looking at us as a regional brand that dominates the region, frankly, that was also expanding at the exact same time nationally. So when you think about, I mentioned we've already played in all the windows, you know, that's an opportunity for their brand to get national awareness. And while they represent government employees and federal employees across the country and across the world, you know, they have some bases. So the fact that Seattle has a big base and DC has a big base and Texas has a big base, well, the fact that the Chiefs brand was growing exponentially and from a media perspective, even quicker and larger, it was a perfect timing to do this. And then I just go back to the beginning, which is nobody even knew their name. Nobody knew who they were. Nobody knew what they were. And now you put them on the naming rights of the Chiefs stadium. It's a pretty big takeoff. So kudos to that salesperson who uh, who uncovered GEHA, right? Hopefully, yeah, absolutely. Bonus. Um, you know, we've we've been very fortunate on the show. We we had Mark Lazarus last week from NBC Universal talking about their experience as a broadcast partner. We've had Rini Anderson from the league. We'd love to get your perspective as a team president on what your thoughts are on on the state of the the league, if you will, particularly nationally and globally. Right? We came off two successful games. In London, there's going to be another one and a game in Mexico City and, and Frankfurt. So what are your thoughts on the, the state of the league and the continued growth? Well, I'm sure Rini did a better job of it than I will. And Laz um, talked about the media value better than I can. But, yeah, I think we're very fortunate to be in the National Football League. It's a, it's an, it's a monster right now. Um, you know, we look at our numbers every week and you shake your head. Um, you know, not only the ratings numbers, but you look at, the disparity between our product and how it's consumed versus any other product and how that's grown. Um, it's a it's an amazing time to be part of the league. Um, and I think touching on international, um, we see that as um, a fantastic opportunity that we've been probably one of the most aggressive teams in the league to go after. Um, we bid on the HMA rights, so the HMA international rights that the league provided to all the clubs and we've been on Mexico and Germany. Um, and you know, we've been, Clark Hunt and I have been in Mexico once already. We'll go back again, hopefully next year. Um, we're, we're pushing really hard to have a game there next year. Um, we think in our experience and being over there a few weeks ago, the German market is, the energy there is almost overwhelming. How excited they are to have the NFL. And for us to have the Chiefs, you know, they're, they're excited to have the Chiefs there for all the reasons we do, we've been talking about. You know, if we can get Patrick Mahomes on the ground in Germany, you know, that, that's a great opportunity for us as a brand. And it grows. We look at international as our opportunity to exponentially grow. Um, I always tell the story of, and this will sound a little bit um, ambitious, I guess, but when we started looking at international, I challenged our team to say, what is our goal? What's our objective? And it, around that time, this was three, three, two or three years ago, around that time, we were playing really good football, becoming a national brand, getting exciting windows to play, um, going to the Super Bowl, um, hosting AFC Championship games. And we got a lot of people calling us or talking to us about, hey, you know, you guys have become America's team. Um, it's no longer the Cowboys, it's you, right? And if you're in the league as long as I've been in, I actually would sort of push back on that and say, you know, I was in those meetings with Jerry Jones talking about, hey, could we 
create an event around the combine. And I was one of those people in the meeting go, are you crazy? We're going to, we're going to watch a bunch of guys run around in shorts. And now it does a better rating than, you know, all-star games. So um, I, I respect what Jerry has done and how they became America's team. And I push back on my, my staff on that. And we came up with this ambitious goal to be the world's team. Like why, why not? Right. With the opportunities that are on our plate right now, with the team that we have, with the coach that we have, with the stars, the superstars that we have and players. And now we've got the opportunity to grow from this HMA opportunity that the league has provided, you know, big audacious goal. Yes. Um, but why not? You know, if, if, if not us, who then? So all those things popped in. And now that's sort of our mantra internationally. It's like we want to become the world's team. And we think that if we can get over there and play, especially, um, you know, that generation, those Steeler fans, those Raiders fans, those Dolphins fans, those Cowboys fans who became fans in the 60s, 70s, and 80s. You know, it's our chance. This decade is our chance to become that team so that 20 years from now, people all over the world now are saying, I'm a Chiefs fan. Why? Well, I watched Patrick Mahomes in Germany in, in 2023. Um, and that's our opportunity, and that's how we're, that's how we're approaching it. I'm curious, as technology kind of breaks down barriers and from, from a geography standpoint, we have all this technology and social media that allows people to be fans, whether they're in Germany or whether they're in any part of the United States. Um, and the NBA has been known, famously built the, built their league on the, on stars' names. You have a number of amazing players, but you have a singular um, personality in Patrick Mahomes, who is on commercials all over the place. Um, and continues to be successful on the field. By the way, McGee has, has I think, predicted uh, Super Bowl more Super Bowl wins for you and Patrick Mahomes. So I don't know if he's going to do that on this show or not uh, for this year. But how? <laughs> getting back to the question, how does how does that change all of this equation, and how does that support the popularity of Patrick Mahomes and what he means, not just to the team but to the league, in terms of building your brand? Yeah, I, I think it's um, it's something we look at two ways. One, it's a responsibility. Like we've got to do that right, and we got to support him and his team. You know, a lot of the deals that Patrick and his team do aren't team deals; they're they're deals that they do for Patrick himself. Um, so we got to support those. We got to have a really good open line of communication with him and his team. At the same time, he's a member of our team, and we want to leverage that and utilize that and and give value to him for that. Um, and when I say that, one of the best things that makes it work for us is having a leader like him who understands it's about team. Um, how many stories have we seen in sports where it becomes all about the individual and not the team? And our sport is one where you can't survive as an individual, you need the team. Um, and he understands that and he does all the right things, you know, you know, it's important to take care of your offensive line. It's important to take uh, give credit to your defense. It's important to, you know, credit the the people who work in the building, you know, in the field and make all your things possible. He does a great job of that. But the responsibility also is back to what I was saying about internationals. Like right now, it's our job to maximize what we have, and Patrick's a big piece of that. Um, it goes to the relationship you need to have with the individual. Um, you got to treat him fairly. You got to respect that his job is to win football games and let him do that. But when he does things like he did last night, you got to take full advantage of that. Um, you know, all the social media and the ways that people can consume content now worldwide, we're looking at every piece of that and saying, what can we do with that to maximize that value? So we talked earlier about the size of the Kansas City market. Do you guys, uh, to what extent do you guys collaborate or share best practices with some of the other organizations, specifically Sporting Kansas City and, and the Royals, or, or do you consider them competitors and they're going for the same entertainment dollars, maybe at different times of the year? But talk a little bit about the uniqueness of being in a small market with a couple of other teams. Yeah, we, we're in a really, really good situation right now and that we've got um, – three other professional teams um, in the Royals, Sporting KC, and then the new women's soccer team, the current uh, with the NWSL. Um, and yeah, we're a smaller market. We're kind of a small town too. We all know each other. We all know each other really well. We all see each other socially and we're sort of around each other. So there's, uh, there's always some competition, but there's a lot more collaboration than there is competition. And we learn from each other. I mean, I think Sporting's done a great job with the fan experience. 
and what they've done with their stadium. I'm excited to see what the current does building the first ever female focused soccer stadium. Um, and then um, with the Royals going through their ownership change to John Sherman, John's a local Kansas Cityan. Um, he's a friend. Um, he's, uh, he's a really good person and a really good citizen. So it's going to be exciting to see what they do. Um, now on the competition side, you know, we're, we're, we're competitive. So we're, you know, we're, we're fighting for every dollar and we're fighting for every fan. We're, we're making sure that uh, we're in the right places at the right times with the right products. Um, we have the benefit of being sort of the one uniter. Like in, in Kansas City, you can be from Missouri, you can be from Kansas, you can be a Mizzou Tiger fan, you can be a Kansas Jayhawk or a K-State Wildcat or you know all the regional teams. You're all Chiefs fans. Um, you can be a Royals fan or some Cardinals fans here in Kansas City. Um, you can be a soccer fan or not, um, but you're all Chiefs fans. And, and we, we kind of try to play that role appropriately. Um, and then there's a lot of things we work on together. Uh, the World Cup is coming here in 26. You know, we're the smallest market, I think, in the history of U.S. Uh, or North American uh, markets to, to host a World Cup. That doesn't happen without cooperation of everyone. Um, so it's our venue. It's really going to benefit the women's and men's soccer programs here and the facilities that have been built. But, you know, the Royals are going to have to play a part in that, too, because it's going to impact their MLB schedule. So it's just understanding that the greater good is really important when you're in a market this size. And that's something that, you know, doesn't always play well in major markets. It's much more competitive in major markets. Here, we all understand that we, we all will benefit from this. So we all should be collaborating and supporting. Mark, you touched on this a little bit when you were talking about the power of the NFL, but you did work at both the NHL and the NFL on the league side. Tell us a little about, you know, what is different in in working in those two different environments? Um, what's what's kind of the, the perspective difference that you have uh, being on the team side now after having served in those roles, sales and marketing roles at uh, at those two other leagues? I look back as, you know, I had no idea how unbelievably blessed I was to have those experiences and have them in that order. I worked at the National Hockey League when it was just sort of doing this and taking off. Um, and I tell the story all the time when I was there working with Rick Dudley and Ed Horn and all these great people and great minds in sports marketing. Um, I remember that, you know, I was a junior, junior sales guy and if I had a deal, if I had somebody who wanted to spend some money at the NHL, I could get in Gary Bettman's office and present it. And for the most part, as long as the deal made sense, he was approving it on that spot and we're moving forward. And then I go to the NFL, um, which is kind of where I thought I was just going to stay. Um, once I got to the NFL, working on Park Avenue, shields on my card, I was sort of done. Um, and I remember the first couple of months going, you know, now I've got people calling me wanting to do deals. And my bigger sales job was to go inside to these ownership meetings and present deals and try to justify why they were worth a, enough. Um, so the negotiations were more internal than external. But I learned a lot on the NHL side, and I learned a lot on the NFL side. But I I never learned as much as I learned when I switched over to the club side. Because I think that working for the leagues, you're in sort of these hierarchy structures of you do your job, and it's such a big bureaucracy because it has to be because of what it does that you're sort of siloed. Um, it's the exact opposite at the club level. You you basically are on a team and it's very horizontal. Everybody does everything. Um, and that culture is really important to be successful. Um, so I got to learn that in Philly and then got to sort of build on that in Kansas City. So that's the biggest difference I think is that in the league structure, because it's so big and they do it you know, nationally, um, it's very specific. And in the club structure, it's very, very, um, there's a lot less hierarchy and a lot more, you, you just got to cooperate and you got to do. And that's one of the things we talk about with our organization. Uh, we don't hire a lot of directors. We don't hire a lot of people who direct on how to do things. We hire a lot of doers at every level. And our leaders, especially, you know, at our, in our highest level as an EVP, you know, the EVPs are, you know, rolling their sleeves up and doing the jobs um, as much as anyone else. And, and that's really important to the culture. So David mentioned at the outset that you are the second brown bear football player that we've had on the podcast, but you are also the second alumnus of the national media group. 
Um, wow. we, we had Clay Larashi uh, of Tops who started his career at National Media Group. And for those of you who don't know, this was a, a communications agency in New York, small niche boutique agency run by uh, a legend in the industry, uh, Michael Goldberg. So yeah. talk to us a little bit about what it was like, or I should say, what did you learn working at a, a small boutique agency early on in your career? Well, Michael and Peter Kaplan and that whole team, um, you got to remember where I was coming from. So I was in Atlanta, George Pine and I had started a little agency that was doing a lot of work around NASCAR and around uh, the Olympics in 94, 95, 96. And uh, at the end of 96, George came into me and said, you know, we were doing a ton of work with NASCAR. And he came in and said, by the way, I'm, I'm leaving. I'm going to go uh, run licensing for NASCAR. And I congratulated them, and then we got into a wrestling match because he was just leaving me. Um, and he's an ex-teammate, so you can do that. But um, you know, I was in a situation where I was trying to figure out, should I keep running the agency or should I move on? And Michael and Peter gave me the opportunity to get to New York and work for this agency. And as you said, Tim, a smaller agency. Um, and the first job that Michael gave me was he had such an amazing relationship with the NBA. And he said, we need a relationship with the NHL. Um, and that led me to meet with Kenny Affey, Brian Jennings, oh. and the crew. Um, and, you know, looking back on it, it's hilarious because I was pitching my butt off, you know, just trying to get, you know, the opportunity to to run their first inline hockey tournament tour around the country. Um, and, you know, I think, I think I was with Michael and Peter for four months. And... Ken called and said, Hey, why don't you come work for us? And that's when I left to go to the NHL. So it was a, it was a really cool experience, but a really short lived experience with those two. But I want to answer your question directly because I think Michael portrayed this more than anybody I've ever worked with is the power of relationships. I mean, that guy, he not only knew everybody, but he had relationships with everybody and they were deep. And, um, you know, it's and when people look back on sports marketing, those two guys, Peter Kaplan and Michael Goldberg, have a, a chapter or two in the in the big book because they did amazing work and the stories they could tell were you know stories I still tell to this day. Yeah, Peter Peter passed at a young age, but Michael passed away not too long ago. But yeah, legendary guys in, in the industry. It just goes to show you don't have to be the biggest to make a really meaningful, lasting impact. Yeah, good people, great relationships. It, you know, it never changes. They always work, and they were they were two of the best at it. Well, it's a perfect time to come to our closing questions. Although I do want to point out that's a killer Ken Yaffe call out. We're going to have to make sure that uh, we we call him out in our post, Tim. <laughs> I want to talk to Yaffe this week because it's been too long. Yeah, yeah, he's another good one. All right, we don't let anybody leave without asking these two questions. You kind of already hinted a little bit at the at the second one, but we'll we'll take it from a different angle. But the first one is Yeah, real quickly, I wanted to be in the NFL. I wanted to work for the NFL. I played very briefly um, with the Giants, so I wanted to get back. So I went around to a bunch of agencies and said, will you hire me? And they said, go get some relevant experience. So I went and worked for a consulting firm in Boston, like all my colleagues from Brown. Um, I did that for four years and um, amazing experience, traveled the world and got to learn a lot. But I just realized that I want to be in sports. So I took a 50% pay cut, quit my job. I took it, I quit my job. And then I sort of went around the country, um, went to Millman, went to Octagon, uh, my very first meeting with Laz was at Turner Sports, um, trying to get a job there and ended up working for a little agency in Chicago, which was run or uh, funded by the Pritzker family called Regency Productions. Um, Chris Weil, who now is the, yeah, um, the big wig. Chris was the, you know, the number two guy there. I think I was the eighth guy hired and he and I and Pete Office and a bunch of other great people, um, put this little agency together, did a bunch of, um, basically hospitality events around major sporting events, Ryder Cup, PGA Championship, uh, tennis. We actually were the first person to do the uh, Super Bowl Village uh, around the around Super Bowl. Um, and then that actually led to working with George and then so on and so on. So that's how I got started. And then second, 
beyond the relationship aspect, which you touched on beautifully, um, what piece of advice would you give to somebody looking to break into the business? So I'm a big uh, point of contact guy. Um, and I, I remember this specifically. My wife reminds me of this a lot. Um, I was a big, big take advantage of every single point of contact. So I, I, I really believe that every single point of contact, no matter what it is, shaking hands, meeting somebody at Sports Congress, meeting, you know, having a meeting and, and making a sales pitch, um, those can go positively or negatively. And a lot of it depends on your attitude and your preparation, everything else like that. So I always give people the advice that just be prepared but make sure you take advantage of every single point of contact. Don't don't take any one of them for granted because you never know. I mean, you guys have done this. You've experienced this. You've hired people that you know probably were surprised you called them back. You've you've done deals with people because they had more follow up than everybody else. Um, and I, I just am a big believer that you should look at every single point of contact as an opportunity. Um, and and hopefully that's what our staff's doing today. Well, listen, I can say uh, with from personal experience that you've lived that. Uh, idea out, uh, given that we met when we did around NASCAR world, and then we were doing staples and Eagle stuff and so on and so forth. So uh, listen, Mark, can't uh, thank you enough for spending time with us today. Really appreciate it. Know you're busy, so it means a lot. Yeah, thank you, Mark, and good luck the rest of the season. Hopefully, I will make a prediction that the Chiefs will be back in the Super Bowl this year, and we have a sort of a tradition on this podcast that um, if our predictions come true. Team presidents reward us with tickets to the Super Bowl. So um, why did I know that was coming? I'm really excited about that tradition because it's kind of written in stone. Unfortunately, yeah. he's also a really shitty prognosticator. So, <laughs> but I do, I, I do think you guys will will get to the Super Bowl. I think you will beat the the Bills in the yeah. AFC Championship and get back to the Super Bowl. That's my that is my prediction. I hope you're right. I hope you're right. Yeah. Great seeing you guys. I really do miss you guys, and it's great to sort of catch up and just talking through the stories is uh, is fun. It's fun to remember all those good times. Take care, Mark. Thanks. Bye. Really nice catching up uh, with Mark, a uh, a real good guy in this business, and. Uh, you're not the only one that's bullish on on their chances, but uh, like unlike you, I, I just no way I'm going to make as specific predictions as you always tend to make. But I think they, I think they have a good shot. I will yeah. when the time comes. We'll see. We'll see a little more. I, I you know I, I I I say this and I do pinch myself when I look at the quality of guests we get who are willing to come on this show. Right? You know, so. Yeah, no, it's really great. But this is the part of the show when uh, when we take a peek ahead. So, Tim, what do you have your eyes on? So, two things. Um, you know, for those of you who follow me on LinkedIn and you see that I do the Nice Guy Awards, I, I call that specifically the start of the NHL season. Um, I get really pumped up for hockey season every year. So, uh, shout out to Jeff Fisher at the New York Islanders, who's invited me to opening night on Thursday as his guest. Um, so, I had not I've not been to UBS Arena um, before, so I'm looking forward to seeing that. And then. Uh, you know, about five miles from us as the crow flies, uh, uh, New York Yankees will be taking on the Cleveland Guardians tonight in the ALDS. I'll, I'll be watching that. Uh, it's it's weird to see uh, the Phillies and the Braves, two teams from the same division, squaring off in the NLDS and then the Padres and the uh, Dodgers. Again, two teams from the same division um, squaring off in the, in, in the other NLDS. So that's, uh, it's kind of weird, but uh, I'll be watching that as well. I do want to point out that I'm glad to hear that you're breaking your one river rule and uh, jumping both the Hudson and the East River to, to head over to <laughs> well, head over I, to see the uh, the new Islanders Arena. Well, as much as I'm looking forward to seeing Jeff and and seeing the Islanders play, I am cheating a little bit because that is the night I teach my course, so I have to I have to cross two rivers to get to campus anyway. <laughs> so, there you go. There you but, go. Nice. Uh, but I'm, but nice. I am looking forward to it. It's supposedly a beautiful, a beautiful arena. So I too am hoping to watch some, some baseball. I have not, uh, you know, had much of a chance uh, post the uh, Aaron judge uh, Roger Maris thing uh, to watch much baseball and haven't, haven't caught any games. So I'm, I'm looking forward to uh, being able to catch some, 
uh, playoff baseball here coming up. I also think that we're going to continue to see some fallout from the NWSL Sally H report. And um, I'm looking to see what, what Jessica Berman and the, and the players next moves are. I'm, I'm anticipating that over the next few weeks, we'll continue to hear some, some new stories and changes at, at high levels of organization. So that's just going to be an interesting story to follow. And I'm going to have my eye on that. So this is uh, time to say goodbye. We're wrapping episode 39. Big thanks to Kansas City Chiefs President Mark Donovan. Uh, and as always, thank you for listening. We love doing this podcast every week and have appreciated all the wonderful and very useful feedback uh, that we receive from you. So keep it coming. We hope we continue to give you reason to tune in. So until next week, I'm DP, he's McGee, and we'll talk soon. Yeah.